0: Hello, good morning, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, and I'll be joined a little later by Ellie Jacobs, a man who, like all good wizards, arrives precisely when he means to. Speaking of wizards and the wise, our guest today will be Chris Liu, holder of several senior positions in the Obama administration, including Deputy Secretary of Labor, White House Cabinet Secretary and Assistant to the President, and Executive Director of the 2008 Transition Team, which is generally uh, considered to be the smoothest transition in modern presidential politics. And he has thoughts on how Trump's transition laid the foundation for the present mess of his administration, as well as on the GOP's legislative agenda, the future of the Democratic Party, and more. So please stick around for for that. A few quick hitters before we get to our interview. If you're listening to this and you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Uh, If you have subscribed and you haven't reviewed us, please do that. We would really appreciate uh, either. And now I'd like to take this opportunity to wish you, all of our listeners, uh, a very happy Flynn Day. Michael Flynn has uh, pled guilty today, or will plead guilty, to one of the uh, least significant charges that could have been brought against him uh, from the smorgasbord of uh, of potential charges that could have been leveled against him for his activities during the 2016 election and its aftermath. Uh, he's, He's expected to plead guilty, I should say, to... A, uh, a as of this recording, uh, to a charge of making a false statement. Uh, the fact that he was that only that single small charge was brought and his ready acquiescence to it uh, suggests that Michael Flynn is flipping, which could open up uh, all sorts of fun and games. Totally in character for the man. Uh, Miller's investigation has a lot on him. They have uh, stuff on his son, uh, Michael Jr. There There is all sorts of leverage on the guy. And this would make, uh, and so far Flynn has now is now uh, batting one thousand for presidents that he has turned on under whom he has served. Uh, so anyway, uh, th- there are there is speculation of all kinds about what this means for Mueller's investigation. Uh, all of this, st- it's fun to imagine. This is not a fanfic podcast, however, so I will not indulge in speculation about what may be likely to happen with Mueller's investigation. I would just like to wish everyone here a happy Flynn Friday, flipping Friday. Flip Friday? Flynn Flips Friday? Anyway, happy uh, Happy Flynn Day, everyone. All right. Um, over the weekend, uh, the the long Thanksgiving weekend, I hope you all had a, a, a lovely Thanksgiving, those of you who are uh, either in America uh, or uh, are abroad and recognize Thanksgiving. Over the long weekend, uh, the Thanksgiving weekend, there was a, apparently an ethyl gas leak at the New York Times. Uh, this wasn't reported, but it's the only explanation for what's happening over there. uh it, You know, it's interesting. The Times will do something like produce a piece of investigative reporting into the um, drastically and, and indeed, appallingly underreported so-called collateral damage civilian casualties from uh, the drone strike campaigns against ISIL and elsewhere over the last few years. A a thing that I think is a materially and historically important piece of work, I suspect— and that will occur simultaneously with some with a series of other pieces. Uh, and, and the New York Times is a big enterprise, uh, like all big enterprises. There are people that are doing excellent work, and there are people doing not so excellent work. But the contrast between a good a piece of investigative reporting like that that came out I think ten days ago thereabouts, and uh, the period uh, and the pieces that came out during the uh, the outbreak of the ethyl gas leak, which again uh, was pretty much Thanksgiving week, and the weekend is pretty strong. So. During this period that again, I can only assume is is explained by a gas leak, the New York Times ran their their now infamous editorial or not editorial their infamous soft focus feature on the friendly Nazi uh I will not get into that at great length. I suspect most of the people who who listened to this uh, saw that, and the resulting pushback and the rather tin-eared attempt to defend this piece of I, 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 at some level you can see the horrible mistake at work here uh it is the inability i think you know the the idea was we're going to go out we're going to find someone who holds these abhorrent views and we're going to try and figure out you know are these people you know what what makes these people tick how did they how do they come by you know how do and how does an, an apparently normal american become a neo nazi that's the i think the, the that seemed to have been what the new york times was going for here the root of their mistake and and mistake it was because the whole piece just comes across as trying to normalize this as trying to normalize a neo-Nazi. The root of their mistake I think is is fundamentally about a problem that a certain type of white liberal has accepting that not that, that who are genuinely surprised and have difficulty understanding the idea that White supremacy in America isn't just the stuff of uh, swastika tattooed, uh, you know, hill people. You know, I think there is, or you know, or hooded Klansmen. The idea that racism and white supremacy are much more um, are much more prevalent. Uh, I mean, Hannah Arendt did this, right? This, it's been quoted in the pushback—the banality of evil, right—that this is, you know, the problem with these people is not that they march around with swords and torches, but that they have every—they have regular jobs and appear to be regular people, and yet hold these beliefs that would lead to, uh, to—I mean—that would lead to the extermination or the, you know, the forced removal, the cleansing of their own homeland. And, and I think that's sort of what was missing here is. Sure. I mean, these people can present as normal folks uh, until you get right down to the fact that given their druthers, uh, the execution of their dream for their country, it renders them closer in a kind of psychological sense, renders them closer to a serial killer than it does to uh, sort of more normal, uh, even sort of more mainstream uh, conservative voter, much less a mainstream, uh, a mainstream American. So uh, there was the friendly Nazi piece. There was Tom Friedman's absolutely incredible piece about about Mohammed bin Salman, um, in which he uh, you know, talks about the Saudi Spring and uh, and you know Mohammed bin Salman, who is you know is, is flexing his muscles as the heir apparent uh, to the uh, to the Kingdom of Saud. Uh, it's you know he's you know he's going to bring reform and he's going you know he's dashing corruption and you know he's you know he's the new hope for a, you know a better Saudi Arabia and and I say incredible because it really is I mean it's oh boy it was it's been a credulous credulous Thanksgiving with the New York Times uh, it's at, the whole thing had such profound echoes. Of the hopeful narratives around Bashar al-Assad's succession after his father Hafez al-Assad died and Bashar took over in the year 2000, the idea was this young Western-educated dude. And I and I've got to tell you, there is a stripe of uh, of of editorial page uh, foreign policy analyst. I, you know, I myself indulged in this briefly, even though I'm not necessi- even though I do not have space on the New York Times editorial uh, page. Probably just as well. Um, there's a stripe of uh, foreign policy analyst that really loves a good Western-educated aspiring ruler of a country in the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, you know, we did this with. Uh uh, with Shalakashvili in Georgia. Uh, we did this with, uh, you know, or we did this with, uh, we were doing this with, with, we actually did this with um, with Bashar al-Assad, and now we're doing it with, with, uh, with Bashar, uh, with, uh, with Muhammad bin Salman. The idea is, well, you know, here's this young, educated, Western-educated guy who's going to come in, and he's going to, you know, bring some semblance of Western liberal values uh, to the kingdom. That's not what's going to happen here. Uh, the hopeful narratives around Bashar al-Assad, remember, that actually was called the Damascus Spring, back in 2000, the idea was this is going to be a, this guy is going to be a reformer and he's going to liberalize Syria and we see how well that went. I would anticipate that uh, what we are seeing here from um, Mohammed bin Salman is probably more of the same. I hope um, that that is not the case that he may be liberalizing the House of Saud, but the race is not always to the uh, swift nor the battle to the strong, but that is the way to bet. Continuing on the gas leak at the New York Times, these were all run within days of each other. The Friendly Nazi, Mohammed bin Salman, Change We Can Believe In, and a truly astonishing feature piece, Ben Shapiro, real person, apparently. Uh, there's a, a feature piece about conservative activist Ben Shapiro, who, if you read the New York Times pieces, you know, really remarkable for making inroads, or at least his efforts to make inroads into, you know, uh, for conservatives on college campuses, attracting young people to conservatism and so forth. Uh, let's, let's. I won't spend much time on this. Let's be clear: Ben Shapiro is an animatronic Munchkin uh, who repeats uh, books on tape written and read by Ayn Rand. Uh, a feature piece on him has no content whatsoever. We can safely move on. And finally. Recent addition to the New York Times editorial page, uh, Barry Weiss has invented a new branch of ultra-radical feminism. In a piece titled uh, The Limits of Believe All Women, uh, she first extols the virtues of believing women uh, with respect to uh, the current uh, unveiling and and beginning campaign of justice against uh, sexual abusers and sexual harassers. And having cleared her throat a bit about how good this all is, she then gets to the meat of her piece, uh, which is... That uh, there is something unseemly about the way that, uh, or there is something dangerous about the way that uh, that the Believe Women uh, campaign is being conducted, that it is it, in, it creates a danger for men who may be falsely accused. Uh, let me give you a good example of this. Uh, and I, I quote from this piece, and hasn't the hunt been exhilarating? There's no small chance that by the time you finish this article, another mammoth beast of prey, maybe multiple, will be stalked and felled, end quote. Uh, The sexual abusers and sexual harassers are not dumb animals that were out eating grass, ma'am. That that is a ridiculously inappropriate metaphor. Um, Another one, the next paragraph, quote, the huntress's war cry, believe all women, uh, has felt like a bracing corrective to a historical injustice, and so forth. Uh, But I can't also shake the feeling that this mantra creates terrible new problems in addition to solving old ones, end quote. And basically what she goes on to say here is, we're in terrible danger, terrible, terrible danger of of allowing uh, you know this the the bloodlust of you know of women for men to uh, somehow it's really like reading Hesiod actually now that I think about it. We're in terrible danger of letting the bloodlust of women for men uh, to uh, sweep up some uh, to sweep up some innocent men along the way, and you know these these people very clearly. Uh, in fact, she actually quotes one Emily Linden, who's a columnist at Teen Vogue. Uh, uh, you know the, the, you know to as an example of women who don't care if a few innocent men are taken in uh, are you know are, are ruined by this as long as we get vengeance right this is this is an invention, this is a distortion of what believe women is. Um, and it's it was I think revealed very strongly as such uh, when another uh, journalist, uh, Ejima Oulu, uh, who is the uh, I think the executive director uh, or the executive editor, I should say of the establishment reported that she was asked by a paper she didn't name to write an editorial, a counterpoint. So the, the media outlet was going to write a piece uh, saying essentially what Barry Weiss said, that we need to be careful about, uh, you know, we the, the believe women is a great thing, but we need to be careful we're not sweeping up uh, innocent men in the process. And they asked uh, Ms. Oluwut to write a piece uh, essentially saying, we don't. I don't care if innocent people are swept up uh, if innocent men are you know are, ta- are you know are taken and are taken in and ruined as well, uh, you know I just don't give a damn. Uh, the most important thing is this continue unabated. Uh, she declined to do so. She offered a more nuanced view, uh, and they declined to take it. So it is clear, there is clearly an interest here, and 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 it's pretty clear that that Barry Weiss has taken this role for the New York Times in trying to cast. A movement of Me Too, of Believe Women, that is essentially making the ask that when there is a, a claim of sexual harassment or sexual abuse, that our first instinct be to assume it is probably true and proceed with that basis. Assume it is probably true as opposed to the as opposed to the, the status quo forever, which has been look for ulterior motives poke holes find ways for this not to be true find ways to cast doubt that's been the modus operandi for years the current switch and it is the smallest smallest the smallest of movements is we're moving toward assume it's true assume start from a place where it's probably true and go from there that's what that, that's the that's the extent of this dangerous radical new fem, feminism that's going to Hoover up all of these innocent men and ruin their lives. Uh, casting it as anything else is an attempt to subtly. Move the norm back into the way that it always has been. Uh, there is no one credibly calling for the deaths of you know, calling for the ruination and the you know the you know the deaths of you know a thousand innocents that one guilty party may be brought to justice. That that voice just doesn't exist. Imagining it's out there in the shadows serves nothing. Uh, so uh, there is a gas leak at the New York Times. It was a credulous credulous Thanksgiving at the New, at the NYT. Uh, I hope they get that gas leak fixed soon. Uh, but but their transgression was as nothing uh, compared to and we don't often talk about the good folks at this paper but but we do take requests on this podcast and sometimes it's important that, uh, that some wrongs have to be righted the good people at the conservative side the federalist have done a bad thing in particular they have run a an, an astonishing i mean this boy, this is a tremendous piece of editorial content uh, in in the Federalist uh, uh, on November 30th titled Why Alabamans Should Vote for Roy Moore, written by a gentleman named uh, Tully Borland uh, who describes himself as a superhero against the dark forces of political correctness. Uh, So just get that in your head. Uh, this whole thing is a is an extended take on why it's all right for Alabamans to vote for a man who was trespassed from malls and uh, high school football games for picking up teenage girls in his thirties. I, and and I won't I, I won't get into this at great length, but it's it's such a model of its kind. It is such a model of its kind that it's worth talking about it a little bit. So it says uh, it says Professor Borland. I, I should. Uh, I should add, he is a, a prof- an associate professor of philosophy at uh, Wachita Baptist University. Yes, um, so uh, the good, so the good doctor, the good professor, uh, just just comes out swinging. Uh, quote. I am going to argue for the very unpopular, even shocking view that, shocking indeed, even shocking view that even if Roy Moore did what he is accused of doing, Alabamans are within their right to vote for him and they shouldn't let Democrats and never Trumpers shame them into not voting. That's fair enough. They should let themselves shame them into not voting. Uh, He goes on, here is one thing we know and should admit from the start. In his early 30s, Moore had a penchant for dating teenagers. Apparently, this was not an uncommon occurrence during this time. In fact, this practice has a long, hi- long history and is not without some merit if one wants to raise a large family. "End quote." Well, I mean, why didn't you say the man was just was doing this in the 13th century? I mean, that's you know, if, if I had if I had known that, then this still would have been creepy as hell, but at least would have made sense in the context of uh, you know a geocentric universe and uh, and the idea that the plague could be cured with prayer. Uh, but oh wait a minute no but but, uh, but if we are to proceed on the this supposition that this occurred in the late 1970s, uh, then this is just garbage. Uh, he goes on. He mutters a little bit. Uh, he talks about. He actually talks, and this is just a good. This is just a, a, a good a good tip. If you find yourself ever citing age of consent laws to defend any behavior at all, you have fucked up. Stop writing. Walk away from the keyboard. Uh, resign your commission. Go and live in the mountains as a goat. Uh, you, you like you, you've done wrong, and no good will come of it. All right. What else? So he talks about. He literally does. He unironically talks about age of consent laws. Actually, quoting someone else, but it doesn't matter. Uh, he makes a half-hearted attempt to cite some fringe media that casts doubt on the accusers, but I mean, it's pretty clear that that even uh, even our heroic uh, uh, Tully knows that 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 dog won't hunt. This is clearly a thing that happened. Uh, So he spends some time muttering about Doug Jones and abortion uh, and, you know, the idea that, you know, it's one evil is lesser than the other and so on and so forth. Uh, The idea that politics is not clean, blah, 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 goes on in this stuff. I'm not going to give you the full piece. Uh, If you really want to read the full horror of it, it's on the Federalist website. Uh, But he rounds the whole thing out by invoking uh, George Patton, who, uh, the idea being he was not a perfect man, but he was a great general. And this is the quote: "Because in war, military or political, sometimes the profane is all you have left." And I, and I love that so much because it's such a wonderful piece of sleight of hand. The idea being that, well, you know, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't have voted for George. I wouldn't have voted for George Patton as a U.S. senator. The man was a lunatic. Second, whatever else may have been true of him. Uh, secondly, uh, there is uh, this somewhere. Klaus Spitz is rolling over in his grave at this particular comparison of war and politics. Also, no one is talking about not voting for Roy Moore because he swore a lot. Uh, that's that's not the problem. That would actually qualify him more if he spoke like Al Swearengen from Deadwood in Deadwood, and that was that that was the way he addressed everyone at all times. I would consider vote, voting for him more because there's an authenticity to that. Uh, it's it's ludicrous and 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 in some respects appalling. But you you know, but Al, but Al Swearengen knew who he was. Uh, it, more and you know, I mean, this—I I just this just does not this, to say this doesn't hold up and is is a wonderful piece of obfuscation is absolutely delightful. To my knowledge, George Patton was never trespassed from anywhere except uh, Fort Grant. So I talk about this because the Federalist Editorial Board essentially ran a piece that, in in kind of in real time, is a man selling his soul. I mean, this is someone who purports to be a person of faith, purports to be a person of family, standing up and attempting to convince himself and, and you, the reader, uh, that, that voting for this sick, despicable man is somehow your duty and an act of defiance against worse people. And, and I guess my point is, when souls are sold, this is how it happens. The devil doesn't roll up to you with a bag of silver. You go to him because you ha- he has something you want. Uh, And and this and then you negotiate yourself out. You negotiate with yourself. You you auction yourself off, uh, which is which is what uh, the good Professor Borland has done here. Uh, So uh, it's been it's been a fascinating week in media. Uh, We hope they get the uh, the gas leak cleared up in the New York Times. Uh, I don't have any such hope for the Federalist. Uh, And now we turn our attention to more salubrious matters. uh, Our interview with Chris Liu. So here we come. All right. Welcome back.
1: I apologize for missing the intro that Frank so uh, gloriously did. Uh, Thank you very much for running through all that stuff, Frank. Obviously, Frank recorded that before uh, a great deal of the uh, Flynn information came down and before uh, Jared was outed as a, quote, very senior member of the presidential transition team. Um, So we may talk about that a little bit more next week, but uh, in the meantime We are joined by a fantastic guest today. We're really excited about this. Chris Liu has joined us Um, Chris was deputy secretary of labor in the Obama administration prior to that He was the white house cabinet secretary and assistant to President Obama before that He was the executive director of the obama biden transition project And before that he was deputy chief counsel house oversight and government reform committee And he was obama's senate legislative director and going back even farther he was, president, he was a law school classmate of President Obama. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Taking Ship. My pleasure, and
2: especially to be here on a day when there's so much news happening as well. <laughs> yeah,
1: Twitter's really taken up a lot of my time today already. Um, so let's just dive in. Um, Chris, can you tell us uh, where you are, how you got there? You know, kind of just a, a quick rundown of uh, the details of your bio that I so uh, poorly c- crossed over.
2: Well, I have just finished a, a, a 20-year career in government that has spanned all three branches of the federal government—the House, the Senate, White House, a cabinet agency—I uh, am now a. I have a couple roles right now. I'm now a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, which is a research institute that looks at the presidency. I am a senior advisor to a tech company called Fiscal Note. Uh, I was also recently named an at-large member of the. Uh, Democratic National Committee. So I wear many, many hats. I'm a walking gig economy right now.
1: That's fantastic. (laughs) Um, And how did how did you kind of go from law school into government? Uh, What kept you in government for that long long period of time?
2: Yeah. So as you mentioned, I was uh, a Harvard Law School classmate of Barack Obama. Uh, After law school, I uh, clerked for a federal judge for a year, and then did four and a half years at a law firm. Uh, I enjoyed my law firm uh, experience, but it just wasn't what gave me passion. And in 1997, I had the chance to jump and work for the what is now the House Oversight Committee, which was uh, on the Democratic staff. Uh, The ranking minority member, the senior Democrat, was Henry Waxman, a great uh, progressive from L.A., Um, and then spent eight years working for him, did a detour to work on John Kerry's presidential campaign. Uh, and then, lo and behold, my law school classmate becomes a U.S. senator. Uh, asked me to join him as his legislative director. You know, and I—I I, I was having a pretty good career before that point. My career obviously took a much different trajectory uh, <laughs> when he became a U.S. senator, and then uh, several years later, when he became the president of the United States. And so, you know, I—I've I, been—I've uh, been very uh, privileged in my life, and I—I I always say I, I don't—I uh, don't mistake luck for skill. I—I think I'm good enough, but I've been really lucky along the way. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a good couple rolls of the dice, but mostly
1: sounds like a lot of hard work throughout. Um, Let's kind of now swerve into a little bit more of uh, what you were doing during um, the transition project, Um, because this is something that really interests me and and particularly with all the news coming out about the Trump transition today. Um, I was wondering if you could kind of, you know, you were the executive director of the transition. It's been called the most seamless in presidential history or modern history, at least, how did that role sort of evolve? How did it come about? How did you approach it? Um, who did you talk to for advice? What surprised you? What would you do differently in hindsight?
2: Well, especially on a daily like today, it's sort of relevant. I, I always joke that uh, I remember every meeting and contact I had with Russian officials during that transition because I had none of them. Uh, and we could talk a little <laughs> bit more about that. But uh, in early 2008, probably April of 2008, Uh, Senator Obama and I had a conversation about the importance of uh, getting ready for a potential presidency. And um, I mentioned my interest in working on the transition. He thought that made a lot of sense. And, you know, we use the word audacity a lot in Obama world. This was pretty audacious. I mean, this is April of 2008. It's about a month and a half, two months before he wraps up the nomination contest with Hillary Clinton. And it's still then another five months before election day. But he really believed in Early preparation, and he understood uh, the challenges that we were going to face as a nation. The 2008 transition was also the first uh, post 9/11 transition, so there were certainly national security, homeland security issues that needed to be um, that needed to be prepared for. So I started planning. Um, I sat down with the folks that had planned both John Kerry and Al Gore's presidential uh, transitions, and obviously they put together great game plans, but never had a chance to execute them. It's a little bit like, you know, planning a D-Day invasion, but you're never really quite sure how it's going to work out unless you're actually able to implement it. Uh, And then a couple months um, after I joined, uh, John Podesta came on as well. Um, And uh, there's nobody better uh, to know how to uh, organize it and and manage a White House than John Podesta. And we were kind of off to the races and we worked in secret for most of the summer and fall of 2008 putting together uh, potential slates of personnel, uh, cataloging the policy promises that had been made during the campaign and figuring out how we translate that into legislation and regulation. Uh, we were preparing to do deep dives into all of the agencies that we would be uh, taking over along the way. And it was a pretty mammoth project. And, but, you know, we had to do it all in secret. And then the day after Election Day, uh, I was named the executive director of the transition. Uh, John Podesta was named the chairman and then we had this incredible sprint, uh, for 77 days until, uh, noon on January 20th when, um, when the officially the Obama administration began. And so, um, it, it, you know, his, uh, the historians have called it, you know, one of the best transitions and we certainly put a lot of, uh, time and effort into it, but I would also say in fairness, uh, we give a lot of the credit to the outgoing Bush administration. And President Obama has been very um, generous in his praise of President Bush. Uh, we work hand in glove with them, not only just after election day, but even before election day, uh, I would meet with the, the Bush White House folks with the McCain people uh, side by side. And, you know, I know that obviously the Bush people preferred a different candidate one, but they never treated us any differently than uh, than our colleagues on the other side. And, Uh, During the transition, the actual 77 days, uh, I did twice daily calls with the uh, White House deputy chief of staff to work through uh, various issues that uh, were coming up. And um, so I'm uh, I'm very appreciative of the cooperation. And and we offered frankly, the same level of cooperation to our successors uh, in the Trump team. Uh, And we talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how that worked.
1: Yeah, that'd be great if we can turn into this. I mean, it sounds like you were working on it long enough to know that uh, the whole White House staff does in fact leave at noon on the twentieth, <laughs> which seemed to have uh, uh, surprised the Trump team. Um, when did you? Uh, it, so you mentioned that you had um, already been talking to the Bush administration uh, before election day with the McCain team. Uh, were, was were you in the uh, the Obama administration? Were you talking to both uh, Hillary's campaign and Trump's campaign, or was Trump's campaign not interested? Or How was kind of the dynamic in the run-up to Election Day?
2: So, you know, in the eight years since we did our transition in 2008, there a lot of things had changed. You know, in 2008 and really prior to that, transitions had always occurred before Election Day or transition planning had always occurred, but it was done in secret. There was always the sense that you didn't want to measure the drapes uh, before. You didn't want to measure the drapes before you won. You didn't want to spike the football, whatever analogy you want to use. Uh, In the intervening eight years, there have been two pieces of legislation passed by Congress that really formalized pre-election day transition planning so that both sides, the Clinton and the Trump people, were given access to office space, which we didn't have the ability to have in 2008, um, computer support, which is particularly important given uh, cyber concerns as well. And there really was a formalized process for the outgoing White House to engage with both campaigns in, in a very public way that wasn't possible in 2008. So, you know, in, from the Obama White House perspective, which I was part of uh, but more from the Department of Labor perspective, since I was managing our transition in 2016. Um, you know, there was a series of materials that were put together. There were a bunch of uh, forums that were done um, to try to uh, start to get both sides up to speed on uh, on what they would be uh, required to do post election day. It, it was a little bit different in the sense that the Clinton people obviously understood what it was like to govern uh, and, and a, uh, uh, a transition that occurs within the same party is just a relatively easy transition. I think the Trump team in many of the problems that they have had over the past year can be traced back to uh, the lack of planning. Um, They really did very little planning before Election Day to the extent that they did. Uh, They put Chris Christie in charge of that effort, and he had some really good, smart people who worked on it. But as you'll recall, the day after Election Day, Christie was removed as the transition chair. Uh, Bannon and Flynn and others basically took over at that point. So they really started from scratch after Election Day. That was one of the problems. The second problem they have, and the easy way to remember this is sort of, I say, the four Ps. First P is being prepared. Uh, Second P is people. uh, you'll recall back during the campaign, there was this whole group of never Trumpers, largely in the foreign policy realm, people who said, you know, Republicans who said, "I will not work in this administration," uh, and so that, in some sense, really deprived the incoming Trump administration of some of the best and brightest from the Republican establishment. And then on top of that, you have a president who really did not want to bring anybody on board who had said anything critical of him. Uh, so the, the 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 ranks of potential personnel had really been depleted uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, the third P is policy. Uh, you know, for us back in 2008, we had put, gone through a, you know, a, a really difficult uh, primary campaign with Hillary Clinton that was really based on ideas. You know, what should be our strategy in Iraq? What should be our immigration policy? How do we design health uh, healthcare reform? So back then all we had to do is translate campaign policy into actual governing policy. The Trump campaign, uh, in contrast, was really a policy, uh, a campaign that was largely devoid of policy. It was about broad themes, uh, many of the themes which were contradictory to each other in certain ways. So they were designing policies from day one, uh, starting uh, really the day after election day. And then the last P is really process we ran our transition after election day as you would uh, run a White House. So when we were putting together, for instance, an economic plan, we would bring together not only the relevant um, people that would be in the White House or the relevant cabinet members or people who had been nominated to be cabinet members, you know, talk through the different ideas, reach consensus on issues, and to the extent that we couldn't reach consensus, surface those up for the president elect and vice president elect to consider. Uh, By all accounts, uh, the transition for the Trump people, the Trump White House uh, is not one that's really uh, governed by much process at all. And to the extent that there is process, it, it, it all gets overridden at the end by the whims of, uh, of Donald Trump. And so, um, you know, I think whether they, they have gotten their sea legs a year afterwards or not, I think remains to be seen. I mean, some of the problems you continue to have right now are based on lack of process, inability to fill jobs, perhaps some of the wrong people being put in jobs, um, some of the policy not uh, making a lot of sense along the way. But again, I, you know, a lot of this problems you've seen over the past year really go back to their lack
0: of planning. It's, I want to pick up on something that you mentioned. You talk about the inability to fill jobs, and that has certainly been a defining feature of, of this administration. To what extent do you think is this about an inability to fill jobs and to what extent do you think it's about an unwillingness to fill jobs? That there are just certain roles they don't consider valuable and don't think should be done.
2: Well, I, I, so I'll give you two examples. I think I think they're both correct. I mean, at the uh, Department of Labor, where I spent my last three years, uh, there are only two Senate confirmed people at the Department of Labor right now. Out of you know maybe twenty five positions that are subject to confirmation. I suspect that's because the Trump administration doesn't necessarily care about worker issues, and so there are no great rush to fill those jobs. I think the contrast, though, is at the State Department. Um, and, and, and there, um, I think it's both the inability to find people, um, again, the never-Trumpers never, never have really deprived them of some of the best and brightest. Um, some of it is ideological conflicts between uh, what Secretary Tillerson has wanted to do versus what uh, the White House has wanted to do um, you know and again you know there's been a lot said about um, Steve Bannon's dictate about the deconstruction of the administrative state and I think certainly at some agencies it's trying to um, it's trying to deplete them of people but I do think the consequences of this are pretty serious I mean in particularly when you look at the State Department you know you at a time when we have uh, our greatest foreign policy crisis is North Korea right now. You have no, confer- actually, you you have no nominee to be the ambassador to South Korea. You've got no assistant secretary of state for East Asian affairs. You've got no assistant secretary of defense for East Asian affairs. Um, and you could go around the globe. And, uh, you know, if if that's deliberate, I think that's incredibly detrimental and troubling for our national security.
1: Yeah, it, it seems like uh, that that uh, there's almost a willful ignorance of how to approach problems because, you know, Trump and kind of his magnanimity thinks he can just solve it over Twitter. And that's, you know, in dumbest timeline America, that's sort
2: of what we expect at this point, that he's just going to tweet something. Right. I mean, and the other thing, just, I mean, candidly, I think it's a, a mistake on their part. I mean, people are policy. Yeah. And, you know, these agencies are. Like big ocean liners, and you need a lot of captains at the helm to turn it in a different direction. And if you don't have those captains there, the ocean liner is going to go the direction it was heading in before, which was frankly the direction that we left it in when we left um, on January 20th.
1: It's interesting that you bring up the uh, ocean liner analogy. Frank has been talking a lot about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic the last couple days. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, and, and it seems like we may be afoot on that on the, uh, on the national security or the foreign policy front right now as well. Yeah, it definitely seems like we're, we're, we're
1: heading in that direction. Um, before we turn to um, uh, some mo- much more current events, we wanted to, uh, just one more uh, kind of multi-part question on uh, your time in the, admin- in the Obama administration. Um, Everybody sees what trump is doing how he's governing Uh, you just have to look at twitter or watch the news I mean, it's the most covered white house. I think ever at this point Um, we were curious about um, You you touched on a little bit in your last answer. we were more curious about uh, What's going on in the cabinet and kind of from your position as having that role in the obama administration uh, as a cabinet member and as uh, Secretary of the cabinet um, How do you see this cabinet functioning or not functioning? um, If you had you know three grand wishes that you could implement right now, what would they be to sort of help help out what's going on? Um, you know, sort of
2: just, it'd be really interesting to hear your perspective on all of that. Well, I look, I mean, I think part of it is the difference between how Democratic presidents and Republican presidents use the cabinet. Uh, under Democratic administrations, cabinets, you know, uh, they, they, they do more policy, they do more regulation, they have a greater role in uh, pushing forward the administration's agenda. Um, Under Republican administrations, which tend not to be as activist, uh, there's a lot more retrenching that happens. And I think when you look at the Trump cabinet right now, I sort of divide into three categories. Uh, There's obviously the National Security Cabinet, uh, which is, you know, I think tried valiantly to be a stabilizing force amid the chaos that is um, Trump and his tweets. Um, I think then that there's a second bucket of people. I look at somebody like Scott Pruitt or Ryan Zinke, who really are actively trying to deconstruct uh, the uh, the Obama legacy on issues like the environment uh, or conservation. Uh, And I think being incredibly effective in doing that, and I think effective and destructive uh, in doing that, but very effective in doing that. And then frankly, there's the rest of the cabinet and I am just amazed that I have not heard from many of them. I mean, I couldn't tell you, frankly, what Sonny Perdue is doing at the Department of Agriculture, even at a place like transportation, uh, where, you know, a year ago we were talking about potentially a big infrastructure bill. Uh, I, I'm not sure what Elaine Chao was doing, uh, even in my old department, the Department of Labor. Uh, and I get, and I get most of the press releases and the newsletters that come out of the Department of Labor don't really know what Alex Costa is spending
0: his time doing either. It may, may not be that uh, Alex Cost knows that and knows the answer to that question either. I will say this for for, for Ryan Zinke, though, in a, in a moment of his defense. He is pioneering new traditions in the use of flags, which I think is, uh, is, is, an, under, is an underappreciated element. For those who may not know, the uh, Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, insists that there is a flag that is raised above his office building when he is in the office and that it be lowered when he is out. He claims this is a uh, in some sort of effort for transparency, but the only other uh, the only other official I know who has this uh, is the Queen of England. So, yeah, and,
2: and, 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 and apparently,
0: it, uh, I will tell you. Apparently, he also
2: discovered that there's not just a Department of Interior flag; there's a Secretary of Interior flag too. And he's asked that, the, that his flag. Be the same size or bigger than the American flag. I mean, there, there's a way <laughs> so much time insane. that is being spent on this. I, I had a bunch of reporters ask me, "Did you have a flag at the Department of Labor?" I said, I-, "I don't know. They somebody put a flag up. I didn't actually ask them to do it. I don't. I don't know when the thing went up. And it certainly uh, it did not go up when Tom Perez and I walked into
0: the office." Okay. So at what level do you think you should have your own flag? Because I want to drill down into this because sooner or later, Democrats are going to win the white house again. And some people who are listening are going to have an opportunity for appointments. How, how far high up the hierarchy should you be to have your own? <laughs> uh, look, American I, I it can't just be the secretaries. We've got, you know, we got to give people a chance to really, really build. A-
2: yeah, no, I think, um, you know, I, I look, I, I, if I have the opportunity to go back into government, um, I, I'm going to keep my, um, energy, focus 100% on the mission I'm supposed to be doing as opposed to uh, the flag that is flying a bottom way off above my office or the other amazing press stories about Zinke are the way he's decorating his office as well he seems to have this great affinity for large stuffed uh, heads of uh, dead animals all over his office so
1: well it kind of fits with the interior I suppose if he's going for that whole Teddy Roosevelt uh, ride ride your horse up the up, up San Juan Hill kind of look which seems to be what he's doing that's exactly right um, so let's, uh, let, let's pivot a little bit, um, um, into current events and talk about, uh, the tax bill. We can talk about Flynn a little bit. Um, and then, uh, let's spend, uh, maybe we can close out the interview talking a little bit about, uh, your former boss at the labor, at the labor department, Tom Perez, and, uh, how the DNC is working What what you think is going to happen, um, next fall and, um, a few falls from now. Um, but if you want, like, let's start with the, with the tax bill that is looking, um, more and more likely to pass, uh, at some point this weekend.
2: Yeah, I look, um, I, I am, I'm amazed that's it's going to pass. I mean, this is a bill, uh, that is going to, uh, raise taxes on people earning less than $75,000. Uh, it will, um, take away health care for about 13 million people. It's going to add well over $1 trillion of debt, um, um, uh, because of these tax cuts that really aren't going to kind of create the kind of economic growth, uh, that, that, that have been touted, you know, and, and, this is all ostensibly done about, um, creating jobs, growing wages and, you know, whether it's the history of the 2001 Bush tax cuts or the history of the 2012, uh, tax cuts in Kansas, or frankly, every respectable economist. There's nobody who believes uh, these. Are, this is gonna have any measurable impact on either wages or job creation. Um, this is nothing more than a giveaway to the super rich. And I actually don't understand from a political reason uh, why the Republicans are, are doing this other, per, other than perhaps to satisfy their donors, because I think this certainly doesn't help uh, the base of Republican voters. That being said, they are, you know, uh, uh, they're proceeding uh, full speed ahead on a bill that still has not yet been completely written. It's pretty clear that not a single senator has read the entire thing or understands truly what the economic impact of this is. And so, you know, it, it looks like it's going to pass. And I think then I think it'll be a um, it'll be a war on both sides to message this. Uh, and, and, and I think this will uh, this will ultimately have a, a, an impact, a significant impact in the 2018 midterm elections.
0: One of the the challenges, I think, that comes from a piece of of legislation like this, because you know, I mean, I, I've that that sounds like a reasonable pr- uh, projection. It looks like this thing is going to pass, and as you say, it's almost a bill without a constituency. I mean, there's the donor class of the Republican Party, but no one else seems to want this thing, and and it's a polit- as you say, it's a it's a political liability, and it seems like it would be one of the first things that a Democratic majority would attempt to roll back and and push the other way. And so this sort of raises the question of what good is a tax cut that is passed upon which no business could project its future, its its future policy, its future strategy, because you know that as soon as there's a Democratic House or Democratic Senate, an opportunity to roll it back, they're going to do exactly that. And this creates one more challenge, which is how, in an era in which what we, what we have seen. When, what we have seen with the Trump the arrival of the Trump administration is an attempt to significantly undo much of what was accomplished during the Obama administration. It is very likely that a Democratic administration that follows this one, should there be such a thing, will attempt to undo a lot of what the Trump administration has done. There's always a little bit of that, but the extremes seem to be getting larger. How do you govern and how do you act in a democracy when, it's when policy begins to whipsaw back and forth like this? Well, you're exactly right. I was going back just now looking at uh,
2: the 1986 tax reform act uh, that President Reagan signed, which is, you know, uh, what Trump is trying to model this after. And there's some significant differences. I mean, one difference was Reagan's tax reform was actually tax reform. That was a revenue neutral tax vehicle. This one adds at least a trillion dollars of debt and probably closer to 1.4 trillion. Uh, The other notable thing about that is when President Reagan signed that in 1986, he was surrounded by Democrats who had worked with him, people like Dick Gephardt and Dan Rostenkowski and Russell Long. And so there was a lasting quality to it. And so when you pass a piece of legislation, as this one will pass, on a sheer party line vote, yes, you are opening yourselves up to this being uh, undone later on. And more importantly, along the way, uh, and again, look, I will stipulate that the tax code is a mess. It is worth cleaning up every couple of decades. Uh, and had that been the goal, um, I think this could have been done in a bipartisan way. But when you take away um, the ability of um, of students to deduct student loan interest, or uh, you, you you make a graduate student stipends taxable, or you take away the ability for Uh, teachers to deduct uh, the school supplies or uh, take away the medical deductions. You're offending a whole set of constituents uh, for whom there is a tangible harm to provide a more amorphous benefit to corporations that frankly are sitting on a pile of money right now. So yeah, you're 100% right. Um, it's, It's more easy to identify the people who lose as a result of this than the people who gain.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. You know, one of the things that Frank and I have talked about um, over the last, well, over the last couple months is um, this idea we've, because of the time Frank spent uh, working in politics in in the UK, uh, we start, we do a little bit of UK politics here. And one of the things that's always fascinated me is the shadow cabinet idea. And I've, I've I was really curious during the healthcare debate why Democrats didn't roll out a their fix to Obamacare because everybody said that there are flaws in this as any massive piece of legislation has. There's going to be flaws. There's going to be un, unintended consequences and things five years from now we couldn't have possibly foreseen when we wrote this thing. So why didn't why didn't the, why don't the Democrats and and your time on the Hill maybe you can answer this. Um, better than we can because we sort of scratch our heads. Why isn't there a better attempt to really roll out a full legislative package as opposed to just kind of throwing bombs from the sidelines?
2: No, I think you're right. And I think it's the challenge when you are the party in opposition. And um, you certainly see those policy ideas, those alternatives being floated when you're in a presidential uh, campaign, because as as a candidate, you have to put forward your ideas. Uh, unfortunately, our politics in our country right now is you probably get as much, if not more, mileage out of opposing something than putting forward your own ideas that create a target. You know, I remember, you know, I was on the hill in two thousand and six when Democrats retook the House and Senate uh, based on the idea that we didn't like George Bush's war in Iraq. Uh, whether we had a better plan, I, you know is it remains to be seen, uh, but simply opposing something uh, was enough to win back the House and Senate. and, Conversely, in 2010, I was in the White House when we lost uh, the House of Representatives based on the Republican idea that Obamacare is bad. They, as we now know, had no better alternative along the way. So opposition in and of itself works uh, in some ways much better uh, when you are uh, fighting for control of Congress. Uh, when you start to get into a presidential campaign, that's the time when it, it makes more sense to put up an alternative uh, policy idea.
1: Yeah. Um, well, so we kind of covered taxes a little bit. Let's, um, um, well, let's hit on some of the other current events, uh, going back to, to the cabinet and uh, uh, the transition. Um, obviously, uh, Frank mentioned earlier today that uh, Mike, Michael Flynn pleaded guilty to one count of lying to the feds, which apparently has a maximum penalty of five years. Um, uh, any smart, anybody who, uh, all the smart people on Twitter that, that we all follow uh, have all interpreted this, that Besides the fact that he was guilty of uh um Favre violations and apparently potentially guilty of violating the Logan Act, um, there's a whole hill of be whole hill of things that he was clearly um uh, gonna going to be hit with and uh, uh Mueller's team uh uh, apparently, uh, earlier in the week it was reported they uh, gave him the full list of of what he was looking up against. And yesterday he decided he wanted to cooperate in full, uh, pleading to this one measly count, which to us kind of signals there's probably a whole hell of a lot that he's singing to um, Mueller's team right now. Um, are, how do you how are you interpreting sort of um, what uh, Frank? Who was it? It was uh, Stephen Colbert who calls uh, this. Who calls this stupid Watergate, which we really like in Dumbest Timeline America? Well, we feel John like Oliver. Like John Oliver. Exactly. Stupid Watergate. How are you seeing this from the sidelines, um, having been part of a pretty ethically pure administration?
2: Well, I, you know, I just jotted down three quick thoughts. One is um, every Everyone who works in government knows that w- you never lie to the FBI. Let's just say you just never lie to any investigator, and that includes a congressional investigator. That's the classic thing you never do. Uh, and and clearly, Flynn did this on at least several occasions. And as you rightly point out, uh, the fact that they charged him with this, I think, given everything else that we know about what he did, I think this is really the tip of the iceberg of potential violations that Mueller's holding in his back pocket to uh, entice him to cooperate. Uh, I think the second thing we could say from this is notwithstanding uh, Trump's um, statements that the, or at least Ty Cobb telling Trump that the end of the investigation is near, the investigation end is not near. In fact, uh, I think we are simply at the uh, beginning of this process. And so this will not wrap up as uh, by Christmas, as uh, Trump apparently is telling people at Mar-a-Lago. Um, and I think the third thing that's important about this is um, th- these th- these this conversation or conversations that Flynn had with Kislyak uh, were first reported by the Washington Post on January 12th, a paper that Donald Trump loves saying is fake news. And I think uh, it is fair to say that the uh, reporting that has been done largely by the Post and the New York Times has been incredible in keeping this story going um, and highlighting and really kind of providing um, an a, a investigative trail for Mueller and, and really for congressional investigators as well. And so um, today is a pretty good day for, if nothing else, for the freedom of the press.
1: There's a very damning timeline uh, that uh, Matt Miller, who the, uh, the former spokesperson for the DOJ and the, administ- and the uh, Obama administration, put together a quick timeline that I saw earlier. January 24th, Flynn lies to the FBI. January 26th, Ye- Yates warns the White House that Flynn, uh, that the Russians could uh, um, have blackmail on Flynn. Uh, January 27th, Trump responds not by firing Flynn, but asking Comey for loyalty fledge. And then on January 30th, he fires
2: Sally Yates. Yeah, I mean, that that is damning in and of itself. And I think the other thing that's damning is um, the statements that are coming out of the White House today is that the reason we fired him is because he didn't disclose these conversations. And as we now know from what Mueller has revealed today, uh, Flynn was given instructions to have these conversations with Kislyak. And, and and you know, the, the very senior trans- transition uh, official may very well be Jared Kushner or possibly someone other than that. So, um there, um, there, there's an incredible series of inconsistencies right now, and the timeline doesn't look very good right now. And again, um, I suspect uh, Robert Mueller knows what happened uh, in many ways, much more than what Ty Cobb and others know uh, if they're simply relying on uh, Donald Trump's representations.
1: Yeah, let me let me ask one question, uh, kind of from a legal perspective, and I, I want Frank to jump in. Um, I, when I was reading the the uh, plea document, um, in the first section or the third section, where they're talking about the conversations with Kislyak, it says uh, Flynn was directed by a by a senior member of the presidential uh, transition team, and then when it talks about um, the calls that Flynn was making to other ambassadors to push back on the uh, UN Security Council uh, resolution on Israeli settlements, it says a very senior. Um, member of the presidential transition team. And Frank and I were just talking about this before before you joined us. Um, are we reading too closely that that's two different people, or is the way that that's written, and Mueller's probably, team is probably so hyper careful with what they're writing, that, um, and if it's true that Jared Kushner is the very senior person, which makes sense given that it, um, it, it was Israel-related, um, Eli Lake at Bloomberg um, has already written that it was Kushner, um, does that mean that there's a different person that was directing him um, and why would one be very senior and
2: one just senior? Well, I, I, in my mind, yes, they are, I think they are. That is intentional. They are two different people. Um, I think it's also not clear to me that Kushner is the very senior. He could be the senior. And if you go back and remember when they replaced Chris Christie as transition chair, they inserted in Mike Pence. Um, I don't think Mike Pence is the very senior. Uh, again, if you remember the the press accounts from earlier in the year when uh, uh, Flynn was relieved, uh, it was because he actually had misled Pence about his conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I you know I, I maybe shouldn't take that at face value. So, um, I, I think the jury's out on who the very senior is. I'm not sure it necessarily is Kushner.
0: Yeah, All right, Frank, jump on in. presumably, presumably, there's somewhere out there. There's an ultra senior, and then an ultra senior senior person who is sitting back, a kind of Mister X figure. Um, who is the top of this particular senior pyramid who's been pulling all the strings. On the sort of subject of how someone like Flynn gets gets in a position to do this, I want to kind of go back to a, what I, I perceive as being a cultural question about the Trump administration and about the Trump campaign. The way that you described how you and the the 08 transition team and, and John Podesta's chair prepared for this, very consistent with the administra- with the way the administration behaved, which is an assumption that governing is hard – that it takes quality people, and it's, it's, a difficult proposi- it's a difficult proposition that requires all four of the Ps that you just described, but especially preparation. And the sharp contrast with the way that the Trump administration both prepared for their transition and then has executed their, their or attempted to execute their policy agenda, it seems to me that coming, f- and I suspect this comes from the top, that there is a cultural clash within the Trump administration of a few people who understand how difficult this is, and I think probably Secretary Mattis would be maybe the best example of this, and and a coterie of people who either don't under who really don't understand how difficult government is, or actively think it is not hard. And the reason that the Obama administration the reason that the previous eight years didn't go the way that they wanted it to is that the Obama administration must have been either stupid or weak or disloyal or whatever. Right? Any one of the pejoratives that they would throw it at people like you uh, is that. Is, is that, do you think, a reasonable interpretation of what's happening here, the sort of culture clash between people who, to put it bluntly, some a few who take government seriously and a few who just who don't?
2: Yeah, I, I think that's it. And I, the other wrinkle I'd add to that is a lack of understanding about what government does. Um, if you come in from the perspective that uh, these are all bureaucrats, government is wasteful, it's too bloated, we need to reduce the size of it, uh, you don't take seriously that, you know, Government provides health care to veterans. Uh, government protects Homeland Security. Government provides food stamps to people. We train people for jobs. We provide um, education benefits. It, running these multi billion dollar programs is hard. Uh, it shouldn't be ideological, and you want to find the best people possible to do that. And as I mentioned, I think the Trump team has really been handicapped by the fact that uh, they didn't have a lot of people early on in the campaign from these kind of establishment circles who had who had governed before, who understood the challenges. You, you know, the only senator who endorsed Donald Trump during the campaign was Sessions. Uh, and in the foreign policy realm, uh, you know, Mike Flynn is one of the few people who had actually had any experience, and we could talk about what that experience was, um, who was willing to come out on behalf of, of Trump. And so he, by all accounts, Trump is a very loyal person. Um, These people had been with him during a campaign that a primary campaign that no one thought he could win. And he decided to 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 bring these people on into his administration. And and the remarkable thing that is now coming out again is that um, in the meeting that Trump and Obama had in the Oval Office, uh, apparently Obama went to great lengths to say, do not bring Flynn into the White House. He's a bad character. We fired him from D.I.A. Um, He's not reliable. And, And and Trump went ahead and did it anyway out of loyalty and 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 things have gone that
0: way since then and very possibly because president obama told him not to and therefore he felt like he had to do it <laughs> that's very possible as well
1: yeah well you know we 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 do love trebo for his loyalty um we he's still not co- responded to our request to join us on the podcast we're not sure if it's because of the nickname or because we're both from you know north of the mason dixon line
2: um
1: <laughs> Um, but l- let's pivot again now that we've kind of uh, trashed a little bit of the—trashed the Trump administration for long enough. Um, uh, you mentioned um, that you're a member of the, of the DNC now. Um, you worked uh, very closely with Tom Perez, who's the now, now the chairman of the DNC. Um, can you give us some insight into his thinking, into the party's thinking, um, what you see playing out over the next uh, 10, mo- 10 months leading into—11 um, months leading into Election Day 2018?
2: You know, yeah, um, I was I was Tom Perez's uh, deputy secretary uh, when he was secretary of labor for three years. And so Tom and I are very close. Um, he, you know, just a little bit of background. I mean, he obviously was secretary of labor. He was the um, assistant attorney general for civil rights. He had been the secretary of labor in Maryland. He had been a longtime civil rights, social justice um, advocate. Um So this is a new job for him, a new type of experience running the DNC. Uh, But what is interesting is that Tom comes out of state government. He also ran uh, and was on the city council, uh, the county council of Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a a suburb of Washington. So he understands the importance of state and local uh, officials. And what he has said is that the DNC needs um, not just to focus on winning the White House every four years, uh, we need to compete from the school board to the Senate uh, to the White House, and you know what we saw uh, three weeks ago um, in Virginia and New Jersey, and really all around the country, was the DNC changing its traditional approach and trying to take back uh, local, uh, take win local seats. And you see this in you know my home state uh, of Virginia, where I don't think anybody thought uh, Democrats would come as close as they are going to come to taking back the. Um, House of Delegates. it'll probably be fifty one, forty nine, fifty, fifty when all the recounts are done. Um, so I think it's uh, it's a refocusing to uh, state and local elections. And, you know it's been said that uh, over the eight years of the Democrat of uh, of President Obama, Democrats lost, I think, close to a thousand state legislative seats. And so, uh, and that's in large part because of the neglect, not only of the DNC, but frankly of uh, of of the Obama, White House and not taking seriously, um, uh, some of these state and local races. Um, I think it's obviously investing in technology. You know, some of the issues that came out uh, around the hacking from last year um, have need to be addressed. I think, frankly, it's also reimagining what the role of the Democratic Party is. Um, neither the DNC or the RNC are what they were 20 or 30 years ago. And in fact, it's because of um, kind of rush of outside money that can come in now i mean there are limits on how much money you can give to a state party but there's no amount of money there's no limit on what you can give to a super PAC, and particularly in the democratic ecosystem right now you have all these resistance groups that are starting up and i think that's a wonderful grassroots uh energy and i think the challenge for the dnc is how do you provide some structure to that uh, without stifling the innovation and the energy and so just some of the challenges uh, that Tom Perez faces, but I think there are also great opportunities. I think the energy that you are seeing on the left uh, is only going to increase between now and next November.
0: That's you make a really good point about the role of the party, and and we you know we heard the idea of the Democratic Party reinvesting at the grassroots level. Uh, this is that 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 comes around cyclically. It was one of uh, Howard Dean's big big themes in uh, when he was running for party chair and and became, and became party chair. Uh, but the point that you made and this is something that that I periodically do on this podcast occasionally is to is not necessarily even to defend the dnc from its critics but to like, like the pedant I am, try and clarify what the DNC is for, because it's sort of anytime something bad for Democrats happens, anytime something bad happens to Democrats, there'll be some courses as oh well, the DNC really screwed this up. And so well, the DNC, I mean, it, the DNC isn't everywhere all the time. Its its role is obviously changing, and, and you touched on this, but I'd like to add, like to press if I may, and if you can speak to this for a little bit more specifics about what the DNC's how it plays that kind of convening and support role for. A developing ecosystem of resistance groups yeah I think I think
2: look, um, I think the DNC can play a powerful role in developing strategy, um, obviously polling about what messages work and don't work. Um, I think providing um, uh, allowing a forum for best practices to be shared not only among the resistance groups but also um, state parties as well. Um, I think messaging, technology um, I, I think it's really kind of you know an umbrella. Um, but it obviously can't do everything. I mean, I, look, a training of candidates, training of activists is something that the DNC can do. Um, but it shouldn't be the only training uh, vehicle. Um, it shouldn't be the only developer of technology. There's so many incredible apps right now that register uh, voters or allow, allow um Uh, people to connect with each other. The DNC shouldn't be in the business of developing apps, but when they find one that's good, they should use their platform to disseminate that to um, like-minded groups. There are certain things for which there is an uh, efficiency. Um, I think obviously um, polling, there's an efficiency in doing it at the national level. I think probably training at some level um, uh, can be done more efficiently. But I think otherwise, um, it's a convener, um, it stitches together the resistance groups. Um, it, it, Tom Perez, in many ways, the most valuable thing he has is a bully pulpit. Um, he can get onto the cable shows. He can do Sunday morning TV. He can help set the tone. Uh, he, he can, and I think that's, that, that's one of the, 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 the greatest advantages he has.
1: So, um, as he's laying this groundwork, we, we know that there's still kind of this, in we see it on our, on our Twitter feed all the time, uh, this, um, uh, Intro, inner party um, uh, debate that's still ongoing between um, what we call the loony left and um, the forces of good. Um, where do you? How do you see him balancing that? Do you think he's doing it successfully? How How do you look at it as um, as a as a member of the DNC? Um, and where? How do you see that playing out over the next couple months to hopefully align the party um, as
2: we go into tw- as we go into the elections in twenty eighteen. Yeah, I, candidly, we've we've got to stop refighting the battle of 2016. Uh, you know, Bernie versus Hillary, we're long past that right now. Uh, we have a common enemy. Our common enemy is Donald Trump. Uh, our common enemy is the Republican Congress that is uh, intent on el- eliminating health care and giving um, huge tax breaks to the super wealthy. Uh, I think it does us no good to rehash those um Uh, those battles of the past. That being said, I do think, you know, there's going to be this interesting debate that's going to play out over the next couple of years um, in terms of our next nominating process. You um, You know, do we stick with caucuses in certain places versus primaries? Uh, do we allow them to be open versus closed, meaning only party members can vote versus anyone who wants to show up can show up and vote? Uh, what is the role of superdelegates? What is um, the sequencing of um, of, of primaries? That uh, I think these are important decisions that the party needs to make. And I think my hope is that we can do that in a way that's not seen through the lens of uh, 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 the the 2016 fights between uh, Clinton and Sanders.
0: Yeah, but fighting our Republican enemy seems like it's a very hard, long, and expensive proposition. Whereas internal and endless internal civil war seems easy and familiar. So I'm I'm actually taking a position in favor of endless and war. I will say what you've just described. I think it's absolutely right. What you've just described reminds me a lot of the questions that when I was work, when I was doing a fair amount of work in British politics after the in 2010 and after the 2010 defeat uh, for the Labor Party, the Labor Party itself had to confront was this question of were these big procedural questions, of like how do we bring, you know, uh, you know how, how do we select our candidates, how do we make it, you know, how, what, do, what degree of openness is right, how do we, who can participate in our selections and so forth, primaries and so forth. Uh, and, and in the end, the solution was a fairly small bore one that nonetheless moved the party significantly to the left. Uh, and these are different countries with different traditions. The Labour Party, and the Democratic Party, are not perfect parallels by any stretch of the imagination. But it, it sort of seems to me that the energy in the party right now is very much on the left side, and any move toward openness could move the party farther to the left. Which I'm not necessarily saying is a bad thing. Does that seem like the seem like a fair read to you? You know,
2: look, I think the energy is on the left, but I think what's interesting is if you look at how this played out in the um, in the gubernatorial races that we just had. Uh, both in New Jersey and in Virginia. You know, both of our candidates are obviously progressive. They're probably more centrist than they are progressive. Um, you know, in in Virginia, you had this very interesting dynamic come up when you had a primary contest between Tom Perriello and Ralph Northam, which, you know, was seen by some as a proxy for the 2016 battle. And in the end, when Tom Perriello lost, he went out there and he stumped relentlessly for Ralph Northam. Um, and so, look, I, we are the Democratic Party. We love fighting among ourselves. And that's one of the wonderful things about the party. The important thing is that when we after after we have these internal debates, we come together uh, as a party. I, look, I was there in 2008. I mean, there, there was nothing more hardly contested than the. Um, uh, than the Obama-Clinton primary battle. But, you know, we came together as a party, and I and I, and I I maintain that we still can. The challenge is always when you win, uh, a lot of those internal differences get papered over. Uh, and when you lose, everyone loves to rehash all of these problems. I mean, look, this issue came up in 2008. What is the role of superdelegates? Um, or what is the role of caucuses? Obama, we won a ton of caucuses because we we're really well organized. Um, and we won a lot of primaries in uh very very red states and racked up a lot of delegates uh but because we as a party won the white house we kind of nobody thought to kind of re-examine some of these issues so it's probably right that we do that now
1: that that sounds like really really good advice uh chris we want to ask you three hot take uh questions and then we're going to move into our patented lightning round um so the first hot take question and you know yes or no on this one do do the democrats take the house back in 18 yes okay do we take the senate
2: uh I, I I'll say, I, I don't know. Um, I'm feeling increasingly more optimistic about it.
1: Okay. And then the, uh, last one, who's your pick for 2020?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I will, I, I actually, I'm going to defer on that one because I actually am a super delegate and so oh. I will have a, I will have a stake in that. So I, I think. Oh, all
1: right. Wow. Interesting. If we forget, you're a super delegate in it. You were potentially advocating to, uh, um, ec- <laughs> make
2: yourself expire. <laughs> Yeah, that is actually an odd thing. Not only was I uh, made a a member of the DNC, I was also put on the rules committee, which will decide what the role of the superdelegate is. So, uh, yeah, I. (laughs) So, yes, I'm conflicted on all of
1: this.
0: (laughs) All right. uh, Frank, do you want to lead the uh, lightning round? Sure. Uh, We have four quick questions for you. Uh, Is there a book, a piece of music, a film or a television program that you recommend for our listeners?
2: Uh, the one I've been thinking about a lot lately is the movie All the President's Men. Uh, the book is fantastic <laughs> sure. as well. And I think particularly in this age where Trump loves attacking the media that he doesn't like as fake news, I think it's important to realize that many of the things that have come out in the Russia investigation or on you know White House or, or administration ethics is because of the dogged reporting of reporters. Uh, and this really um, is in this very kind of troubling time, this is kind of a a rebirth of investigative journalism, uh, and there's nothing that kind of captures that better than all the president's men.
0: Strong recommendation, a classic. Is there a food or drink you've had recently that you would recommend to our listeners?
2: Uh, I will tell you, and you you may be, I I sit and I drink uh, relentlessly uh, Coke Zero. Um, I drink this thing like water, uh, and I was really concerned when they uh, we're changing the formula and the repackaging of this to Coke uh, Zero sugar. But I, I drink this like water. I love it. I strongly recommend it.
0: Okay, that's that, that is one, if I may say, Chris, one of the more troubling recommendations we've had during a lightning round. <laughs> but you know, we're all we're, this is this is a this is a free and fair debate here. Okay, in the Trump era, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. Uh, what is an organization that you recommend supporting and why?
2: Um. I, I don't look. I, obviously, I'm biased, and so I, it's easy for me to say the DNC. But I would say more than that. Um, I would say find a good local candidate, um, make a financial contribution if you are able to do that, uh, and if you don't have uh, the financial means to do that, then go out and campaign. Go out and help that person. Um, I, as you know, not only have we seen this, you know, powerful rebirth of. Of, uh, of journalism uh, over the last nine months, we've seen this incredible civic awareness and engagement. And I am just so um, inspired by some of the people that are now pursuing office, many of whom are people who I served with in the Obama administration. Uh, and, and it's all around the country in red states and blue states. Uh, find somebody you care about um, and, and, and help them get elected. Um, I, that really is what
0: this moment calls for. Because that's a terrific piece of advice. That's yes, uh, and we you know endorsed by taking ship thousand uh, percent. And so, Chris, where can people follow you? Where can they find you if they want to follow your thoughts and activities?
2: Yeah, I am. I am on Twitter at Chris Lou Forty Four. Uh, I am uh, relentlessly tweeting um, and uh, would love to share my thoughts and, and, and meet more of your
1: listeners. Uh, Chris Liu, this has been fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for finding us and uh, for agreeing to join us and uh, taking so much time to, to chat with us. And uh, um, I think I can speak for uh, my shipmate, Frank. Uh, we will absolutely positively have you back on uh, in, in the coming weeks as uh, um, there's a lot of stuff I don't think we even got close to touching during this interview. But this has been really great. Thank you so much. My, my pleasure. <laughs> I look forward to being back. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. Uh, Thank you for sticking through this uh, slightly longer episode. Again, thank you, Frank, for recording the intro while I was uh, off um, taking care of Batgirl. Um, Again, we want to thank Chris Liu for joining us, and we look forward to uh, having him on again and having some of his friends and and former colleagues and and, uh, other people he recommends on, and be sure to follow him on Twitter. Uh, We will be Uh, posting this uh, up online um, uh, on Twitter very frequently because we want to take advantage of having somebody as great as Chris as one of our guests. Um, But with that, uh, everybody should subscribe on our Twitter. Uh, Taking ship, it's ship with a P as in presidential. Um, Subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Uh, please. Those would be very, very helpful um, for Casper Mattress reasons. And um, it would be great if you follow
0: us on Facebook as well. Um, And with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? We take ship this week to Wales, as as I'm sure you all saw coming. Uh, We take ship this week to Wales uh, as part of our continuing mission to discover what nefarious plans the ocean has for us. Uh, This was occasioned uh, by something that actually happened in October, but that I just found out about, uh, in which uh, 25 octopi uh, uh, went for uh, for a walk. There's no other way to describe it. Went for a walk uh, three nights in a row, in fact. Uh, in, uh, in Caradigin in West Wales. Uh, and it's not clear why they did this. It's not clear what they were up to. But yes, 25 octopi took a walk uh, for at least three nights in West Wales. Now, friends, we are, if, we are nothing if not measured people. Uh, you know, uh, constant, abstemious, uh, moderate uh, folks here at Taking Ship. Not much given to flights of fancy or extreme reaction. But this, this is not good. There's no way to look at this and, and and think that this is not the beginning of something uh, truly shocking, particularly in light of the arrival of a prehistoric shark off the coast of Portugal two weeks ago. But we think this thing goes farther up. We think that this thing may go all the way to the top of the Octopi Pyramid, and the Octopi Pyramid is, of course, the sinister Mr. Inky. For those of you who may not remember this bulletin, and I assume most of you were hanging on it with bated breath, uh, back in uh, April of 2016, uh, Inky, uh, an octopus, uh, famous octopus from the National Aquarium of New Zealand, because New Zealand is the kind of place where you could have a famous octopus, uh, escaped. Uh, he escaped uh, from uh, his, uh, his his tank in the National Aquarium and is at large in the ocean. Uh, mr. ADA I, I think it is not a coincidence that mr. inky escaped and then less and then a little better than a year later uh, suddenly the octopi begin appearing taking walks in Wales mm, eh? and we know mr. inky is of course a sinister character because uh, he rather heartlessly left blotchy his partner uh, back in the uh, back in the tank although blotchy uh, is is uh, is you know like any good partner is keeping quiet about where uh, where inky has gone I also just want to point out that uh, footage airing on Blue Planet 2 in the UK show a, a an octopus surviving an attack by a shark using armor made of shells. These things are getting smarter, they are walking upon. They are walking the streets of Wales like a common rugby team. Uh, this this cannot be allowed to persist. We take ship uh, for the land of our fathers. Uh, we will sing "Bread of Heaven." We'll get some Pendaren whiskey. We'll look into what may be happening uh, with this octopi. Whether this thing goes all the way to the top, uh, we will we will identify and locate Mister Inky or perish in the attempt. Almost certainly the latter. And uh, and then we will report back, friends. We take ship now for Wales. Take care, everybody.